years old. And so you know what that means? That means they just dump puzzles everywhere. And it is not nearly as peaceful at Christmas in my family's house as it used to be. Things change over time, but there's one thing about Christmas that never changes. And that is the history of Christmas and the significance of that very first Christmas that we find in the Bible. It is still the day we celebrate and remember God's gift to us, the greatest gift ever given, the gift of Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save us and to rescue us. That's what we remember every Christmas, and nothing can take away the story and the significance of Christmas. But as we prepare for Christmas and go to the parties and fight people at Toys R Us and do all of this different stuff, sometimes the story gets lost. Sometimes the significance gets lost in the midst of everything. And so this year at Harvest Point over the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to return. We're going to return to that very first Christmas and look at the story and the significance that it meant for the people then and what it means for us today. And so we're going to be in the book of Luke for the next four weeks and we're going to look at Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ and the events surrounding it. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, we actually have free Bibles as a gift to you at our Welcome Center. We'd love for you to grab one on the way out or grab one next week. And when we return to Luke chapter 1, what we find is we find a short introduction that Luke writes. And then we find some passages that lead up to the birth of Christ. Because what you'll find is interesting is that Luke doesn't start the Christmas story with Bethlehem, with camels, with wise men, with Joseph. Luke doesn't start the Christmas story even with Mary. Luke actually starts somewhere else. He starts with Mary's relative, Elizabeth, and her husband, Zechariah. And it doesn't start in Bethlehem. It doesn't start in Nazareth. Instead, it all starts in Jerusalem, in the temple. And so this morning, we're going to return to that story. And Luke, he's a master craftsman because he's researched all of this. He's talked to eyewitnesses of these events, and he's put together this account of Jesus' life. And the reason he starts in the temple with Zechariah and Elizabeth is that he's trying to tell us that the Christmas story, it didn't just happen randomly in history. It didn't just start with Jesus one day. This story of Christmas is actually part of a much bigger story. This is a monumental event in a story that began in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And so he starts there in the temple, beginning in verse 5. And here's what we read. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the commands that the Lord had and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving As a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, 
to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now I want to pause right here because this is getting a little in the weeds. Luke is giving us a lot of historical background about the time in which these events surrounding the very first Christmas took place. And he starts off by saying that all of this is taking place when Herod the Great was king of Judea. And so Herod is king, and Herod was a Jewish man, but he was an ally of the Romans. He was really kind of working for them. The Romans owned and occupied all of the land that the Jews were in at the time. And so that's the kind of political climate that we find ourselves in. And then we find that we're in the temple here in this story. And the temple in this time was the center of life for the Israelite people, for the Jewish people. It was the center of worship. It was the center of everything. And here is Zechariah, and Zechariah is a priest. And Zechariah is part of a division of priests, one of 24 divisions. And these divisions, they they weren't at the temple all the time. They worked for two weeks a year, one week stints. And so he had left Elizabeth. He's at the temple, and he's doing the work of God, a high and holy calling. And he's not only doing the work of God, it says here that he was chosen by lot to burn incense. And now, that seems so far removed from our everyday life, but for them, it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And being chosen by lot meant being chosen by God to go and to burn incense before and after sacrifices. And the only people eligible for selection were people who'd never done it before. And so here's Zechariah being a priest in Jerusalem. He's just been chosen to go to one of the holiest places in the entire world in this room in the temple and to burn incense on the people, to burn incense for the people. And then we come to verse 11 and the story continues. As he was in there, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled, and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And as he's hearing all of this, here's what Zechariah asks. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent. You will be unable to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he he couldn't speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, 
he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. The Lord has done this for me. In the days, these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. As we return to this very first story in this sequence of events that we call Christmas, we return to a story of hope. I mean, just try to put yourselves in the shoes of some of these characters at the time. Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were holy people. According to the law, they were righteous people. They upheld the law. They were, they were people who were doing great things. Zechariah was a priest. They had a good life together, but they were unable to conceive. And they were both getting older in years. And yet, they hoped. They hoped and they prayed for a child. That God might send them a child they could love, they could nurture in this world. Not Zechariah and Elizabeth, but think about the Israelite people, the Jewish people at this time. Put yourself in their shoes. There have been over 400 years since they had last heard from a prophet. And growing up, reading the scriptures, reading the Old Testament, they had read that God had promised to send a Messiah, that is, a Savior, someone to come and to rescue them. Isaiah said that the Savior was going to come and bring good news to the poor, to release people who were captive, to proclaim sight for the blind. This Messiah was going to come and rescue them. They had been looking forward to that. But year after year, they hoped and they waited, and the Messiah didn't come. But still, the Jewish people, they hoped. And they waited, and they looked forward to this day. So that's them. But then we have the other people. We have the people who weren't Jewish at the time, what we call Gentiles. And they're probably a lot like you and me. They're, they're trying to get by in life. They're trying to take care of their families. They're trying to pay their bills. But then when they look out at the world, they see a lot of pain. They see a lot of darkness. They see a lot of brokenness. And they're like us. They probably ask themselves, will things ever change? Will things ever get better? Is there any hope in this world? And some of them probably didn't hope. But some of them, in the midst of those questions, did hope. Hope that one day things would be different, even though they weren't sure how that would happen. And in the midst of all of these hopes, something amazing happens here in this holy place. Zechariah receives a message that all of these hopes are beginning to be fulfilled. He learns that he and Elizabeth's hope for a child, that's soon going to come to pass. That even though they're old and they've been unable to conceive their entire lives, that they're in line with a lot of women in the Old Testament and that God is going to bless them with a the child and their child's name is going to be John, which means God is gracious. 
And so we see the beginning of their hope fulfilled. But Gabriel tells us that John wasn't just going to be a gracious gift to them, but that John was going to be a gift and a joy for more than their family. Gabriel says that many are going to rejoice in the sight of the Lord because John is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so the Jewish people at the time, they began to have their hopes fulfilled. Because if the one who's preparing the way for the Messiah is coming into the world, then that means the Messiah is soon after. And so their hopes began to be fulfilled. And the other people who had hope that things might change, their hopes were beginning to be fulfilled even though they didn't know it yet. And I don't know about you, but if I had been praying, hoping, and waiting year after year for something like this to happen, I would be so ecstatic. I would jump up and down. I, I would celebrate. I would probably spin around. I would do a little jig like that or something. Only Emily sees me do my little happy dances like she's shaking her head now. I shouldn't have done that. Okay. I would be so thrilled that that happened. But the twist in this story is that that's not everybody's response. And actually, when we look at the story, that's not Zechariah's response to the angel Gabriel. I mean, look at Zechariah. He doesn't fall down and worship in the throne room of God. He doesn't celebrate. He, he doesn't give praise. His first thing to do is to question. He, he says to Gabriel, how can I be sure of this? Here I am in the holiest place, one of the holiest places in the temple, doing something that I've been chosen to do, which is once in a lifetime. Here's an angel speaking to me, but how can I be sure of this, God? How can I be sure of this? We are old. We're too old to have kids. That's Zechariah's response. And then sure enough, he gets a sign. He gets a sign that this is a word from God. He's unable to speak until the child is born. But then when the child is born, we see later, he speaks again. And he gives a song of praise down the line. But Zechariah's initial response, this response of, of questioning, of doubt, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of us are in that place a lot of the time. You know, we're like Zechariah. We're lifting up hopes. We're lifting up prayers before God. And there's no telling how long Zechariah prayed. Day after day, year after year. But if you're like me, when you pray day after day, year after year, and you don't get an answer, sometimes you begin to lose hope. You begin to fear. You begin to doubt. A lot of us have been hurt by people in this world, and so we have a hard time trusting. We have a hard time trusting God. and have a hard time trusting other people. And so when something good comes our way, when there does look like there's a prayer answered or hope fulfilled, our initial response is like Zechariah, and we say, how can I be sure of this? Maybe this is a coincidence. This seems too good to be true. That's how Zechariah responds to this hope fulfilled. But then we see Elizabeth. Elizabeth responds very differently, right? Elizabeth 
as someone who had been hurt by the world. If you called it at the end of that scripture passage, she'd been hurt. She had endured a life of disgrace and shame. Because in their culture, if you were unable to conceive, it was assumed that you were immoral. And that you had some kind of moral defect, that you were deficient. And so she lived with that burden, even though we know that wasn't the case. We know she was holy, upright, and righteous. But she lived with that dishonor, with that disgrace, with that shame. And yet, day after day, year after year, she hoped. She hoped and she prayed. And then one day, when she gets this news, that she's going to have a son. A son named John. What does she do? She doesn't say, how can I be sure of this? Instead, she rejoices and she says, God has done this for me. He has provided. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with hope. I struggle with hope, and so it's not easy for me to write about hope and talk about hope all the time. But I want hope like Elizabeth had. Does anybody here want hope like that? That's the kind of hope I want. Hope that endures. Hope that is able to wait. Hope that is able to sit in the midst of the darkness when it doesn't look like there's a way forward and still trusts God, waits and hopes and looks forward to God to provide. That's the kind of hope I want. And the good news this morning and the good news of Christmas is that that kind of hope is possible. That you and I can have that kind of hope deep within our souls because of Jesus Christ. It can grow within us no matter how hardened our hearts are. And that kind of hope begins when we look back and we remember God's work in the past. Hope begins when we look back and we remember God's work in the past because you see, when we return to that very first Christmas and we see God fulfilling His promises that He had made to His people, we learn that God is faithful. I mean, in Genesis, God began making promises right away. After we messed things up and introduced sin and brokenness into this world, God began making a way. And he promised Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And then in the prophets and elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see these promises for a Messiah, for a Savior. And we see at Christmas when we return to that, that God makes good on his word. And so when we return to the very first Christmas and look back, we remember that God is faithful because here's the thing. Hope isn't thinking positive thoughts. Hope is trusting God's promises and provision for the future. Hope isn't thinking positive thoughts. Hope is trusting God's promises and provision for the future. And when we look back at the past and see how God has provided in the past, then we can be sure that God will provide in the future. And in Jesus, that very first Christmas, that first Advent, a word that means arrival, at Jesus Christ's first arrival into this world, we see hope in the flesh. 
we see the hope of all the world beginning to be fulfilled through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, but the story doesn't end there. Because Jesus ascends into heaven, and we also read in the Bible that Jesus will have a second advent, that he will one day come again. And so hope doesn't just grow when we look back at the past and how God has worked in the past. Hope also grows as we look to the future and to what God has promised to do then. And when we look to the future, when we look in Revelation and we see about Christ's second return, here's what we find. We find this, that Jesus will wipe away every tear. That one day there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, no more suffering. That the work of redemption that began at Christmas will be brought to full completion. That's the hope we have. And when we look to the future... It grows within us. And so God wants to grow our hope by looking to the past and at his faithfulness, looking to the future, at his promises of what is ultimately to come. But God also wants to grow our hope and make hope real in our present day lives. God wants us to look at our world with eyes wide open, to admit that it's broken, it's full of problems, and to acknowledge that but he wants us to trust him anyway. He wants us to acknowledge reality and trust him anyway. And what does that look like? Well, when you've been let go from a job or you've been out of work for a while and you submit another resume trusting that God holds your future, Hope grows. When you've just gotten out of a bad relationship, maybe it was a divorce, maybe it was a breakup, and you go on that next first date anyway, trusting that that God is going to make a way, hope grows. When you bury a loved one, and you look at them, and you trust that one day you're going to be reunited with them in eternity because of Jesus Christ, hope grows. When you look at your calendar, after you wake up in the morning and you feel that sense of dread, and you say, I don't want to do all this stuff today. But then you say to God, God, order my steps today. And you go outside and you do it anyway, that's when hope grows. Hope grows when we trust God with our present and with our future. One of the things I do each Christmas is return to old family stories. And recently I remembered a story about my great-great-uncle, Walter Lee Bird. And Walter Lee grew up in Lakeland, Georgia. None of y'all probably know where that is. It's in South Georgia. And when he was 17, he ran away from home, and he joined the Army. He ran away, joined the Army, fought in the Mexican War, fought in World War I, then got out, but then he joined back up for World War II. And when he was in World War II, 
He was part of a group of soldiers in the Philippines who ultimately had to surrender in battle, and he became a prisoner of war, a POW. And Walter and, and many others who were with him became prisoners of war, and they took part in what's now known as the infamous Bataan Death March. And this was a march where thousands of prisoners of war marched over 70 miles to hellish prisoner of war camps. And along the way, thousands of them died from abuse, from neglect, from malnourishment. Later, it would be called a war crime. But Walter Lee was one who, who survived the march. And so he went to one of the prisoner of war camps where he was there with a number of other people, and he spent three years there. And in that camp, they called themselves ghosts because they didn't really have contact with the outside world, and it felt like they'd been forgotten, like no one knew where they were or was coming to get them. But then after being there for three years in early 1945, they began to get word that Americans were, were coming their way. And so hope grew a little bit. But then it was quickly squashed because the word was as the Americans were coming, prisoners of war were being executed before they could arrive. And so in the midst of this wavering hope, they waited. They waited not knowing what was going to happen in the future, but one glorious day, the soldiers came. And it was one of the great rescues of history, and 300 soldiers outmaneuvered 8,000 other soldiers to come to the camp and to rescue them. And Alvy Robbins, who writes about his experience in the book, was one of the soldiers who had the privilege and honor of bringing Walter Lee and others back to safety. And he writes in the book about the conditions that they found when they arrived. And he writes about how he found a prisoner lying in a dark corner, crying. And he went over to him, and the man said to him, we thought we'd been forgotten. And he replied, we haven't forgotten you. We've come to save you. You're our heroes. And as I think about that story, I think about how hard it is to hope. How hard it is to hope in the world that we live in when we see the news reports, when we see the darkness, when we feel like it's winning, sometimes it's hard day after day to wait, to hope, to trust in God's promises and God's provision. But when we return to the very first Christmas, what we find is we find a story of hope. We find a word of hope. We find God saying to us, I haven't forgotten you. I've come for you. That's what we find when we return to the very first Christmas. But what we also find when we look forward to the next arrival of Christ, 
is we find that one day we'll be able to meet our rescuer face to face. But until that day comes, we wait and we hope. Let's pray. God, before you now, we bring to you a lot of burdens, a lot of concerns, a lot of brokenness. Brokenness in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And God, this morning, we want to hand all of that to you. And we want to trust that you are enough. That you are enough to heal us, to forgive us, to save, you, save us and to rescue us. God, we acknowledge that you have sent our Redeemer into the world, Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would fill us with the hope of Christ. Fill us with the hope that even when we can't see it, that he is at work redeeming all things. That you would fill us with the hope that one day we will be reunited with him. God, that you would fill us with the hope we need to face today and to face tomorrow. God, we ask that you would fill us with that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
the gift that God wants you to have. But like every gift that God gives us, hope is a gift that God doesn't want us to keep for ourselves. God wants us to share it with other people. And this week, as we mentioned earlier, we have that opportunity with Return to Bethlehem to share hope with people in our community. And so this morning, we have a special send out. If you're willing to do something a little bit different, what we want to invite you to do is to grab your stuff, to go check out your children, and then to meet us out back in the Return to Bethlehem village, where we're going to pray over the village. And we're going to gather there, and we're going to ask God that God would bring hope, peace, love, and joy to every single person who walks through there next weekend. And so what I want to invite you to do is I want you to grab your stuff, go check out your kids. You can exit this door or you can just follow the, the mass as it walks out. But I want you to meet us out back in the village as we leave from there together.
to you.